This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 194, brought to you in association with SMART and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Kirill Slavin, serial entrepreneur and currently co-founder of InsureTech Reputation Transfer and co-founder of EdTech Academator, to talk about, is Tim Berners-Lee right? Do we need a radically different approach to identity on the internet? Kirill is a great person to discuss this super important topic with, as Reputation Transfer are deeply involved in viewing and using identity in a radically different way themselves. So, if not a thousand flowers blooming, then at least we have many blooming. As we know, in super low-resolution JPEG style, the internet started as a military project, became a more free-for-all libertarian place, before being reined in by governments with their infinite desire to regulate and control, and big tech, which like all previous megacos when technology has changed our eras, are only too keen to use power for power's sake notably at present, in terms of enforcing orthodoxy on a well-known virus and all treatments and aspects thereof. Technocracy, which has been in development for decades, seems to be the globalists' plan de jour, and at worst, the interweb could keep going in the direction of becoming the worst panopticon in history. It's already arguably way worse than Mao world or Stasi world. So, although generally when people pitch me an idea to have a podcast episode on identity, I fall asleep on the spot. On the other hand, when someone wishes to talk about how there is another potential way that we have to move away from the slide down a slippery scree slope into the pit of despair, then we might have our own plan A. Maybe once again technology can come to the rescue from the problems that itself has created. A little bit here about Tim Berners-Lee in case you don't know what he's up to. This is from Wikipedia which amazingly enough is not always completely incorrect. September 18, Berners-Lee announced his new open source startup, Inrupt, to fuel a commercial ecosystem around the Solid project, which aims to give users more control over their personal data and lets them choose where the data goes, who's allowed to see certain elements, and which apps are allowed to see that data. In November 19, Internet Blah Blah Forum in Berlin, Berners-Lee and the Blah 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 launched Contract for the Web, a campaign initiative to persuade governments, companies and citizens to commit to nine principles to stop misuse, with the warning that, quotes, if we don't act now and act together to prevent the web being misused by those who want to exploit, divide and undermine, we are at risk of squandering its potential for good. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Carol. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, very good to be on your podcast after religiously listening to it for years. Ah, you've got the true religion. I'm very pleased to hear that. One of the interesting things about podcasting is its sort of asynchronicity, which I guess media producers have been used to around the world all the time in that very little has been live for quite some decades. And so I don't know what the word is for date anonymous, but normally these are sort of date recording anonymous. But I have to say, just to get a bit of grumbling off my chest and to ask you where, where you're coming from, that uh, today is November the 30th, which is uh, a couple of days after the, the great dictator in the UK, 
whose personal rating slipped into red territory, decided to do something about it, and in the modern, fashionable way, held a press conference rather than bothering Parliament or anything, and just announced that we're going to be wearing masks because there's a new variant, which is quite funny actually, or not. Uh, although actually this, this time we don't have to wear masks in pubs and restaurants, but we do in shops because the old variant knew you're standing up and sitting down. This variant has, has got 30 mutations and some of those mutations enable the spike protein to know whether we're in a bar and a restaurant. So in terms of me, I, I was at a, a wine tasting on Sunday talking to the wine merchant who's just opened a, a wine bar in Westrum, Boucher, for anybody passing through Westrum, Westrum, you must go there. And he was hoping that as he just opened his new venture in December, that at least it would last until New Year. And I said, well, I hope so. But uh, I can't believe that the government aren't going to keep the fear going, keep the tyranny going and, and keep getting off with sort of messing the populace up. So we, we decided to differ on that. And then lo and behold, that evening or maybe already, but we hadn't read the interweb, they're at it again. So it's yes, it, it, it's deja vu all over again and it's Groundhog Day. So what, what did you make of sort of uh, this December's Groundhog Day? And you've got to wear a mask in, in shops to save Christmas. Well, most of my acquaintances are um, old school epidemiologists who have seen uh, serious things like uh, Ebola and uh, stuff like that. So they are slightly puzzled about all this new choreography, especially those new public health mandates that's wearing mask here, not wearing mask here. Everything is changing, so they are slightly puzzled. I'm puzzled too. Yes, well, Bridget had said this morning, oh, these don't make any sense and I was about to open my mouth and of course after 18 months of being <laughs> locked down a hell of a lot together I can give her words and she can give my words and she said yes okay but you're about to say that it is like the Spanish Inquisition where the Spanish Inquisition there was two things one it was very nasty but two it was very inconsistent and a lot of people will get bogged down on the inconsistencies but the point is that the point was a demonstration of absolute power that is the purpose and if you can have absolute power and you can make people do inconsistent things, that shows how powerful you are. So anyway, let's hope that they're all soon swept away by the tide of counter-revolution that's uh, crossing Europe. And in a century or two, no doubt, sort of some bored school kid at school is going to be told about all this. And, oh, God, you know, they'll be falling asleep and, and reading some boring textbook going on about, oh, yes, and then on the 28th of November, and he won't give a shit about it. And it will all have sort of disappeared. So look, let's skate over this new normal stuff. I'm already got to plan my New Year podcast for next year, which takes some thought. And actually, quite relevantly for, for this episode, I've, I think that I'm going to focus on a, a deep dive in about technology in that Technology always creates solutions and it also creates problems. You know, the usual sort of nuclear power can use to blow up stuff or you can use it for nuclear medicine and knife can heal or kill and all that kind of stuff. But it's very pertinent to, to what we're going through now. And we will drill down in a second into the identity bit about it. But just finishing off the sort of super big societal thing, I saw a pretty good cartoon on um, LinkedIn this morning, which was a cartoon character at a fork in the road. And in one direction lay the Great Reset and the other direction led the Great Awakening. And as we were talking before, a great awakening means that people are finding out more and more about what's going on, which they are, which is good. But we don't always have, certainly just in simple technological terms, an architect's design of where we're going there. The technocrats have got a great design in their minds, which they've been working on for decades. So we'll come back to that one. On more lighter topics, to move off all this sort of uh, scary stuff and saving Christmas and all that, although still very wokest, uh, I shouldn't say this, I saw that uh, Downing College have said that this question is racist to ask this question. So, where's your name from, Kirill? Where's Kirill from? Where's Slavin? Because I haven't met many Kirills and I haven't met many Slavins, actually. And I apologise for my racism, but I'm not from Downing College, so I'm OK on that, I think. I am from Downing College. 
Are you? Oh, well, there we go then. So, so yes, you, you can report me for a, a microaggression. Yes. Forget the fact you locked down the whole population. Everyone's got to worry about microaggressions, like saying, where are you from then, Sunshine? Right. So, um, interestingly, I didn't have a name for a couple of months. Can you believe it? So you had no identity? Yeah, absolutely, yes. That, that's why I'm thinking about identity now. <laughs> Various stakeholders were debating ad infinitum until my grandma found a consensus. There was a saint called Cyril who, with his brother, was evangelizing the Slavs. And as a side hustle, designed um, the glagolitic alphabet. So I was named Kirill, not Cyril, by the way, as per this alphabet, often called Cyrillic. My surname was also a matter of contention or other competition. Uh, in the end, I have my mother's maiden name, since nobody thought uh, at the time of a double or triple barreled name. So that explains the mystery. Yes, yes. And uh, in which country were these debates taking place? Because uh, I know a little, a little bit about sort of Slavic languages, and it seems more sort of Eastern, more into sort of the Russian world than sort of the Western Slavs. Right. Actually, my, my, my Slavic name is very, very rare because it has Finnish origins, which is very, very, very rare. The Scandinavian blood is somehow overlapping with the Slavic blood to, to the extent of one third. I see. So um, I can see that you're definitely from Downing and you're, and you're resisting my attempts to pin you down as to your uh, origins and my terribly racist questioning. So may I derive from this then that, that when you were identity-less, you were somewhere in a, a former Finnish territory which had been taken by Russia sort of whenever it was, sort of Second World War-ish or something, and, and therefore there was this overlapping Finnish and um, Russian culture. That sort of thing, yes. That, that, that sort of thing. Ah, so it's quite far north. Yeah, but um, I actually studied uh, in... Uh, Moscow State University. Augsburg at the time was not affordable for the family and the mathematics at Moscow State was uh, the third best choice. Super prestigious Moscow State University of Maths. Yeah, it was the third best choice. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a very high choice. I've never met anybody from Moscow State University who did maths who wasn't very bright. So anyway, that set the bar quite high, actually. I may revise that opinion later as we go on. So in terms of your journey from Moscow State University to today, how did that work out then career-wise? Yeah, I actually, my career started in, uh, at Wang Labs. Do you remember Wang Labs? Totally. Yeah, right. So their um, Central and Eastern European headquarters were uh, in Vienna. There was a little problem to be hired there because I couldn't read and write. I mean, in German. But right. I could speak Americano. When did you get over the border or the Iron Curtain, depending on whatever year this was? I washed uh, on the riverbank uh, in Vienna, like uh, Jason Bourne. Right. Okay. okay. So, and uh, I started at Wing, and um, it, it was a benevolent American company that hired someone who couldn't read and write, but was speaking good Americano. And then they went belly up almost immediately. That was unlucky, wasn't it? <laughs> right, right. It was not my fault. <laughs> and, and then, it, 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 interestingly, it took me just a couple of hours to be hired by Pepsi. Pepsi was in the same building. So it took me just one flight of stairs, and uh, I was hired immediately. Still not being able to read and write. Okay, what year are we talking about here? I think it was 91. So were you playing with computers, I assume, at Wang, and then Pepsi needed someone to play with computers, or did you go around doing door-to-door Pepsi-Cola sales? I was doing very boring stuff, finance. There were two job ads for Wang. One was for an engineer, and another for a, a deputy finance director. And I went for the finance director after thinking about it for about five minutes. 
and that was my accounts for the, the rest of, the, of, of my life because I've never been rank and file, always a director or something. Okay, and so fast forwarding from your time with fizzy drinks. So how did you go from fizzy drinks to EdTech and InsureTech? First, I was uh, made an uh, offer that I could, couldn't uh, refuse, a directorship at De- De- Deloitte in Moscow to be one of the founding fathers. And I was one of the founding fathers at Deloitte and until I was uh, made uh, another offer that I couldn't refuse, a junior co-founder's position in a startup, in a fintech startup. At the time, we didn't know the word fintech. We're talking 94, and we didn't know what fintech was. Uh, so, But we heard that Charles Schwab was preparing an online trading capability, and we thought of emulating this. Not terribly successfully, but um, we got uh, some sort of kind of Series A type investment from Citibank. And um, then we uh, nearly sold the thing to Commerzbank. And then the Asian crisis uh, wiped us off from the planet. And I I had to switch from uh, banking or fintech to management consultancy, which I did after uh, taking a course at a business school in Cambridge. And then I was just a boring management consultant uh, for a while until I was uh, asked to turn around uh, uh, cybersecurity operations of um, antivirus company in the UK. And um, then I um, became terribly knowledgeable about uh, cybersecurity. And, 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 th- and that's actually a very interesting thing. I've seen many strange things in cybersecurity. For example, older executives, they have better grasp of cybersecurity than younger ones. Do you know why? Mm, pass. Uh, the thing for cybersecurity is, is um, whether you can think logically. <laughs> and young people can't think logically. <laughs> Even if, if, you, if you don't know anything about computers, but if you're a classicist or you're a PPE, you just think logically, you play critical risk. We've got a prime minister who's like that. But uh, anyway, as I've been racist, you can be sort of ageist and say sort of young people don't think and and, and thereby lose all the young people in your companies. Okay, so, and then you've done various founding-y things since. So coming on to this identity point, as I say, at the big picture, it's always good to have a positive vision about where one's going, as opposed to just simply trying to resist being sort of sucked into the more of the beast. So the first question arises is obviously that one of the problems that is not hard to spot, which is that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And one of the big downsides about technology that's enabled the globalists so much is that it does provide a centralizing force, which as far as I can see comes from government to say, oh, there's regulation and they just sort of love them. this micromanagement which is going for a long time. So regulation in itself, oh, you need to, you know, KYC, AML, and actually going back to young people and being ageist for a second, lots of young people I speak to about regulation say, oh yes, but it's, it's to stop crime. We don't want crime. Yeah, right. Okay. When you've got the big, most corrupt sort of Congress sort of ever, and the, you know, the money sort of flooding upwards to the top and all this kind of stuff. So it's obviously working very well. Or maybe not. So there's this narrative around regulation is here to save you and keep you safe. Yes. Okay. Maybe. But also there's, there's technology itself, which is that, uh, as I recall, this thing called uh, Bitcoin, when I sort of first checked all that out and all that kind of stuff, oh, it's decentralized. I thought, well, I, that's cool. I like, I like decentralized. But then actually, before you know it, you're reading an article saying, you know, six Chinese man, you know, mining companies control it. So all that kind of thing. So just the power of networks itself, before you know it, even if you don't have the CIA behind you and stuff, you end up with a kind of Facebook because the value in experts, uh, networks is exponential, blah, blah, blah. So that's my kind of amateur perspective, which is that 
Where is centralization coming from? Well, it's coming because governments are pushing it. And also it's coming because the very nature of technology means it's much better to have a, a network like LinkedIn where everybody's on than to have a thousand networks where you've got 10 people on. So is that sort of roughly right? Or would you like to amend that before we dive into uh, how we decentralize identity? I absolutely agree. I would just put it all the way around. So the, it's easier from technology perspective due to the network effect just to put everything in one place. And then governments and big tech would like to exploit this for their benefit. Yes, and plenty of the hypnotized will go along. One thing I didn't mention was that this cartoon, which I reshared on, on LinkedIn this morning, the first comment when I saw on my notifications just before I came to chat to you made me roll my eyes. So in, in Sweden, there's, a, um, there's a, a trial project to microchip you under the skin in your hand with your identity documents or something like that. And I'd, I'd reshared this with a sort of a comment along the lines that technology is a, a double-edged sword and, and how could this possibly go wrong? Anyway, the first comment was, I'd find this really convenient to be microchipped. Oh, right, okay. So anyway, sheeple, <laughs> that direction. That's actually true. Uh, I, I, actually, my PR manager, he was born in Sweden and he went to Sweden to get a chip into his uh, arm. Okay, good. Right. Good luck. Good luck for them. Um, I shall go even more grid, off grid than before. So for those people who don't regard being sort of microchipped and controlled by sort of Bill Gates, Biden, Fauci and, uh, uh, and Johnson, how are we going to do it, Kirill? I'm not saying we, I'm not, saying, I'm not imputing that you aren't doing anything other than doing what the state wants. But uh, if I hire reputation transfer in my little off grid community on some island I need to make in the Pacific at this rate, uh, but I think there's more than me, there'll be some others joining us um, and we, we get you to come and do it. So just take it from the super big picture. How do you do it the other way around? Right, right. So as you said, some people don't like their digital IDs and personal data stored in centralized databases. And by the way, databases are unsafe. Everything is being hacked from Equifax to Carbon Warehouse to British Airways to FBI to a large number of American government agencies. People want their data, amongst other things, to be safe or at least under their control. Preferably in a user-friendly way, not like doing physical paperwork at their surgery to prevent NHS giving their GP records away to Google, for example. So how can we avoid this stuff? How can we avoid decentralization? There are two different things, data and IDs. Just data is easier. Take credit scoring. Credit bureaus are collecting data, sitting on it, and selling it. And losing it to hackers and keeping silent about that for months, as was in the Equifax case. With the modern network technology, an individual's credit history could be assembled in no time by direct date transfers between banks on request. The network model, instead of hub and spoke, no need for credit bureaus, especially with open banking. So it's already happening to some degree. With ideas, it's, 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 it's a bit trickier. Just on that point, I'm always conscious that most people listening to podcasts are doing something else like going jogging or, or, or driving and turning left and turning right. So on that one is what you're saying is that in the case of payments, should we say, in the, in the case of payments um, and, and loans, historically there has been a, a relatively centralised model via the um, rating agencies, rating bureaus, whatever they're called. Um, but actually that's already starting to actually decay or it could potentially decay because the open banking means that they sort of can, can knock up a credit history in sort of 10 minutes themselves rather than paying an agency for it. Is it, is it happening or is it potential of happening? It's uh, fraying at the edges and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the smartest credit bureau would say, right, 
from this day, we're not going to collect and sit on data. We're just going to send it from all banks to all banks. And we'll be just uh, administering the rules. We won't be a gate uh, date keeper anymore. So I wouldn't be surprised. It will happen without them. Okay, so I get that point, which is that on, on data, there is some, some fraying, as you put it, there's a potential direction of travel and open banking, which of course in itself is created by regulation, will enable this. And then when I so rudely interrupted you, you were saying that data, which is or isn't Tim Berners-Lee's main focus, data is relatively straightforward, but identity. So just on Tim Berners-Lee for the moment, is he just focusing on the data or is he also now moving into the identity? He's always focusing on the data, but uh, it's not possible to own data without doing something about identity. And this something could be some sort of a patch or it could be radical. And I'm going to talk about the radical approach. Good, right, okay, I've got that. So, well, let's go back to when the 15 years, if people can remember Twitter that long ago, Twitter used to be a nice place where it wasn't full of people sort of spewing venom and hatred towards their sort of fellow mankind. It was much more friendly and, and, you know, you could call yourself whatever you want to call yourself and nobody gave a monkeys because it didn't really matter. You had sort of, you know, this, this sort of separate online persona, if you, if you like. So the simple way to do it is that, surely, is that in a number of use cases of which just chatting online is one but not moving millions of dollars around the world, that actually the simplest thing is that companies just don't check. You know, I, I set up an account, I don't know, Instagram for the sake of argument, uh, and I call myself brown cow or something, 47. Who gives a monkeys? I mean, who actually cares? So so why has that one disappeared then? Why is the, the, the thing where, look, I can just be pseudonymous and all I need is my silly name and a, and a, and a password and I can log on to some site and, and who cares? Who cares whether it's me or somebody else? Why is that disappearing? It's not actually disappearing. I mean, it's going back and forth as uh, everything in history. So what's, uh, in, in theory, uh, what you need even for the bank or what banks need needs from you, a bank would need from you just username. They don't need names as such. And my radical uh, solution is uh, ditch the concept of ID as something overarching, something unifying the facets of your relationships with various institutions. Normally this ID is called the name, such as Mike Balleman. Why do we need names in the first place? As in Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. One has a username for each, as, as you mentioned, for each organization, like a bank or Airbnb, but not necessarily the same username for all of them. We're getting into sort of very metaphysical points um, or metapsychological points, which is, you know, is there such a thing as an identity? And a lot of the spiritual path across the world in different traditions is around dissolving or, or moving beyond the ego. But you say, I'm Mike Balliman, and almost everybody does. But my mother calls me Michael. So actually, there isn't really even a me here. And I'm at London Fintech on Twitter. So everybody already has kind of multiple, well, let's say identities. Let's say the sake of argument. You know, you have a, I have an identity as a father to my children. I have an identity as a partner to Bridget. I have an identity as a, a son. A human being is in the first place multiple identities. So in the context of sort of kind of AML, KYC or I need to open a new bank account at Barclays, they're not actually interested in what is really identity. They just want a sort of name, rank and, and number to uniquely say, oh, it's that guy who lives at this address. Is that not the case? Because regulation has told them that they've got to check that I'm not a terrorist. 
Is that right? Absolutely. And just those things are not mutually exclusive. I mean, the using of your rank and number and not having an identity, the, those things are not mutually exclusive. So you could be on Airbnb, you could be Mike B, as you said, on eBay, Balaman M, on the Bitcoin exchange XYZ789, and at a hotel um, Mr. and Mrs. Jones. So uh, nowadays it's possible to prove that user X on platform A is the same as user Y on platform B without the very concept of universal name. And if someone wants to check your username with the state, which is probably Mike Balaman, they could uh, do the same thing. Network uh, instead of hub and, hub and spoke. Right, okay, so the point you're making, which is that things aren't as bad as they might be because we do have multiple identities in the first place. And I do recall, well back in the day, nobody had surnames anyway. And it was the state kind of saying that people had to have surnames. Could it, could it could actually help them tax the various people and, and all that kind of thing. And indeed, I think it may well be a remnant of this in Iceland, going back to places far north, which is you get people whose surname might be Jan's Dottier, like the daughter of Jan. And uh, certainly when we were last discussing identity with Charlie Denningpole of Comply Advantage, one of his technical challenges he had, unsurprisingly, is there are about, I don't know, for the sake of argument, one billion people called Mohammed in the world or something like that. And it can be very difficult to differentiate amongst people with same names or, or Joe Bloggs or John Brown. So, okay, so things aren't as bad as it sounds at the moment. There, there are multiple types of identity. And I guess then, so why is there such a concern around identity? So, for example, I've got to pay my car tax this week. When I go to the DVLA, a government agency, off-balance sheet agency or whatever it is, I've got to say it's me and it is my car and this is my money. So just taking that as a specific example, how would you say that that kind of, is that avoiding centralization already? Because the DVLA doesn't care about a hell of a lot of stuff about me. They only care that actually, whoever I am, I have taxed this car. This car is taxed by me. Well, in principle, DVLA must theoretically be happy with the same arrangements that we have, for example, with uh, Twitter or Airbnb, just your username. But it's happened historically that they have uh, lots of other stuff that is not strictly necessary for them to have. So in the future, the, your state name, your name is in passport, might become just your username with the state, on par with your username for Twitter. Probably slightly more important, but still the same conceptually. So there is no need for some sort of overarching identity. Okay, so I get that. And then I guess that why people are particularly concerned about identity at the moment, or rather, should we say, a unique identifier which spreads very wide, because it doesn't matter whether you call me Mike Balliman or Left Car Wheel 476, whatever, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. But it, what, what it matters is if the state in particular knows a hell of a lot about that, because we're seeing this awful trend to tie your human rights to your... Having been injected with an experimental RNA therapy, which is causing hundreds of footballers to drop dead on pitches and, and, and minor matters like, like that, and has caused more vaccine adverse events, this is on the US system, than all prior vaccines of the past 30 years. So the state and the technocracy, and this is clearly Chinese social credit score and a bunch of stuff like that, is quite keen to use whatever ID they have for their citizen and tie it not just to 
to stuff that it has historically, like these are your taxes, you haven't paid them, or this is your car and you haven't paid the tax. But it's, it's keen to expand its reach in all sorts of directions. And, and, and that's the concern, isn't it, really? Yeah, I, but I am optimistic about it. So on, on the one hand, obviously, the state wants to expand its remit, making it mandatory, for example, for banks, use uh, state name for you rather than your username, right? But at the same time, lots and lots in economy is happening with uh, just with usernames, like, for example, sharing economy, Airbnb, Upwork, Fiverr. People use just usernames there. And obviously, the government wants to capture this, but it's not easy because it's not easily enforceable. And then... Um, just, uh, well, it, it's just technically not terribly easy. So there, there are many forces in play here. So I'm relatively optimistic, especially about the metaverse. As um, they are starting to say now, there are no CCTVs in metaverse. So uh, unlike on the street. So when you go to John Lewis for some shopping by the street, you'll be caught on CCTV cameras. If you go to John Lewis in the metaverse, there will be no CCTVs, especially if you use VPN or Tor browser, that sort of thing. So, interestingly, technology allows people, freedom-loving people, to stay ahead of the game all the time. Of course, each time the government will catch a little bit to, to the state, but the question is who is moving faster. So I'm relatively optimistic about it. Yes. So I take your point, although we're then into Ian e. Foster's When the Machine Stops. There's this brilliant short story written a century ago, very prophetic, about everyone's connected just to their screen and they sort of sit there with feeds into their arms. And then one day that the machine stops and they've got to go to the surface of the planet or whatever and go work it all out, which is that I hear what you say, but the challenge with technology, and I say I'll cover this in more depth. I mean, Jacques Ellul write about this. 1950s, the triumph of technique, that there was a great view amongst mankind that technique will sort stuff out, but actually it's this kind of proliferation of things that needs sorting out. So it may well be that I can go to John Lewis in, in the metaverse if I don't mind sort of Mr. Zuckerberg knowing what I'm buying. But in the real world, you having been in the USSR as a boy, you will have noticed that that sort of went through a bit of phase change of governance um, over the past sort of few decades. In the real world, this total surveillance state of the physical world you know, you can't cross London without being sort of captured on 47,000 cameras and John Lewis and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And when Bridget and I are watching Stargate, for example, you know, sort of sci-fi crap from the 90s, time and again, we'll see something and say, oh, look, oh, isn't that cute? Back in those days, they talk freely and assuming that nobody was listening to them or, or watching them kind of stuff. So there is that challenge. And, and going back to the USSR, there, there, there is the, the practical challenge that unless you want to sit at home hidden behind your tall browser with the sort of the curtains drawn. <laughs> The real world's going to be a bit tricky, but that's a much bigger thing. Okay, well, that's been interesting. We've spoken about a number of things around the topic, and I, I think it's the right kind of high-level conversation to have, given the challenges. I, I think I am more optimistic than I started the conversation, simply because you've pointed out the bleeding obvious, and as listeners will know, I'm very unfamiliar with the bleeding obvious most of the time on most things. But there is quite a, a proliferation of multiple identities at the moment. Uh, I think it's probably because I'm a sort of fintech podcaster that I'm, you know, living the world of FS and all this sort of KML, AYC, blah, 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 and all that. You're more optimistic potentially about the future as long as you hide behind some black curtains and just stare at your tour browser. But it, how would you like to wrap up this 
point. And indeed, answer the question, which I think I'm going to clickbait the episode with, is, which is, is Tim Berners-Lee right? So maybe start with, is Tim, Tim Berners-Lee right? Yes, no, maybe, or all of the above. And then how do you see identity going forward in these challenging times? I mean, one of the good, good things about talking to you, Kirill, and listeners can't, can't really tell it, is that you're sort of the grey hair, no hair brigade like myself. So you've got a, a few decades under your belt. Uh, you've seen plenty of governments come and go, and, and, and you spotted that there's a hell of a lot of similarity, as there is at the moment, a hell of a lot of similarity between governments in, in, in different countries, and, and therefore are the mildest. A new to suspicion is quite sort of useful to the citizen. First, is Tim Berners-Lee right? Then secondly, your wrap-up. As an yes minister, yes and no. I think he's moving in the right direction, but he's not radical enough. So his idea is mostly about personal data, so that you, as a user, and as a person, would own all the personal data and will give permissions whether to give someone or not to give. But he's not radical enough in terms of uh, digital identity. So just stopping on the former then, so would that be the equivalent to kind of open data in the same same way we've got open finance. So for example, I bought lots of books on Amazon, but I go to another bookstore and I'm quite happy for this other bookstore to see my purchases on Amazon so they know what kind of books I like, so they recommend me good books and give me special prices. Is that an example, a simple example? Yeah, yeah absolutely, but with you in control. So that's yes, the correct, thing correct, Tim Berners-Lee correct. is concerned about, so that okay. you will so, be in control of that transfer. So we were agreeing with Tim on, on that one. So that's the yes bit and the no bit is that you feel he isn't radical enough. I mean, I was talking about these initiatives of his, but they were all before the, the sort of West, the freedom-loving, human rights-loving West turned a little bit more tyrannical. So then you're saying that actually this is a good step, but is by no means far enough. So we need a more radical approach. And then your summary, uh, moving on from Mr. Berners-Lee, your summary about why the radical approach is necessary and, and what roughly would be the direction of travel to do it. Well, I think the radical approach just ditching the overarching idea is necessary because it guarantees certain freedoms. It automatically guarantees that you will own your personal data and is absolutely possible from technology point of view. Okay, that's good. Well, you remind me of Lord Turner in that one of the points that he was making, which is that you mentioned academicians, that in good times, of course, uh, not at the moment, but academics are supposed to come up with sort of useful ideas about how you would do something different. Well, that's one of, one of the functions of academics. And he was giving the example of the sort of free marketeers uh, in terms of economics uh, around the Second World War when state planning and state centralisation took over all around the world to fight the war. And he made the point that you can have the right answers, but they have to linger for a long time. And it was only when Thatcher turned up in the 70s and the right circumstances for such seeds, for such an antidote, that these ideas then get taken up by somebody with the political power and the political will. Because for the world to change, it needs somebody with the political power, political will, and who personally thinks that they will benefit as a result to take those uh, and move on. So I buy that. Now, before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there and all your multiple identities. I wonder how many you think you have if you sort of sat down and were stuck in a lift trying to write down the various identities. And my brand partners of the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Thelistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So you've been a very good guest, 
clear on. But you haven't really sort of waved flags for your two hats. Uh, we haven't even talked about how you manage to wear two hats. Do you do sort of mornings and afternoons or the sort of Monday, Tuesday to Wednesday lunchtime and one on the, on the other? Maybe you'll tell us about that. Um, but would you like to give a, a shout out for uh, reputation um, transfer and what I would actually pronounce as academato? Right, right. Uh, thank you. It's quite easy to manage um, an insure tech and an tech at the same time. So just uh, you work uh, day uh, on one and night. <laughs> right, so um, shout out for reputation transfer. So what it does for um, insurance companies is insurance companies, they would love to have more data points, especially from sharing platforms and from social platforms. But the, the, the trouble is uh, people don't have a name as in passport there. And it makes the whole thing really, really tricky. And one of the positive externalities of all those uh, theories about ditching identity is that uh, a reputation transfer allows insurance companies to take new data points from sharing economy users in an ethical way. And ethical means users are in control and that makes them happy. So for example, using your, using your example, so if an insurance company uses your approach, I go to the insurance company and I say, oh, I want to hire a car for a day. Can you insure me for a day? And by the way, here's the data from, you know, all the car hires I've had on, on my thousand trips to Spain in the last 10 years or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And not only a car hires, if you're a good guest on Airbnb and a good, say, buyer or seller on eBay, that means that you are accurate, diligent, you communicate on time, you pay on time, or you deliver something on time, that means you're low risk. I see, good, right, okay, I like that. And, and it's very practical um, after the high level stuff. And uh, I like this word, which I don't hear very much these days. I used to hear much more when I was young, which is ethical. So ethical is really good for me. Now, academator, which I think is how you pronounce it or one of your pronunciations. Right, so academator started from a very simple thing. We want to help children who uh, didn't learn during lockdowns in North London, and we thought that just curating and aggregating what is free in terms of content on the internet would help them. And they didn't, because kids just couldn't study on their own without someone standing behind them with a baseball bat. So um, we designed Academator, an addictive self-study app. So that takes, um, it borrows um, tools from um, social media, from computer games, even from gambling to make self-study engaging, even addictive. So you're using the tools that the, the evil Twitters and Facebooks uh, use to destroy your mental health, you know, very, very reward schemes and sucking you in and hypnotizing you and all that kind of stuff um, for good and not for ill, which is like, here's the way to learn French, but using these same techniques. So you end up sort of learning French rather than having your mental health ruined because everybody on Facebook says they're at a party on Saturday night and you're, you're, you think you're the only person in the world who isn't, etc. Absolutely, yes, even from gambling. When you're at a roulette table, you don't know what will come up. Good, okay. Well, thank you very much for that, Kirill. It's been a nice wrap-up podcast for 2021. And uh, what I particularly like is that uh, you are one of the rare people who managed to bridge the big picture, the social situation of the, of the world with fintech or edtech. And it's very rare that people can combine the both, as you can imagine, and, and no doubt the same as you. I know people who spend all their life ranting and raving about the new world order and, and all that kind of stuff, but in a kind of ungrounded way, which is, yes, it's bad, I agree, right, now what? And on the other hand, a lot of founders are very deeply immersed into some tiny detail of t some tiny silo 
uh, within fintech, and they will know a hell of a lot of that, and, and they won't even know that there's a new president in America or, or something. So I think you've done a great job of bridging the two domains, and uh, I love the fact that also your ventures are clearly ethical and clearly for the social good. So I wish you every success in the future with both of them. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.